Will you pray with me as we open this service today? Lord, you are good and you are holy. And if that's all we knew about you, that would be enough. Lord, help us to trust in your goodness in our lives. Help us to pursue your holiness. Lord, would you make us every day more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. So that we, Lord, may bring you glory first and foremost. But so that the nations may know that you are God and God alone. And that the people may see that you are worthy of worship and honor and praise. And that we may extend the love that you have extended to us to other people. Lord, we know that your word says the way we most actively and truthfully show that Jesus is alive and living and is and was who he says he is and was is when we love each other and when we obey your commands. Lord, you are good and you are holy. And we cling to those today as we begin this, as we begin this study into the Ten Commands of the Lord, the Ten Words of the Lord. Bless this time. Open our hearts and our minds that we may see you. It's in the precious and matchless, the singular and the worthy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to come back to the book of Exodus today. As a matter of fact, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be where Katie just read. We are I know that if you saw her read all the Ten Commandments, you were probably shocked and thinking, we're going to get through all the Ten Commandments today? Well, you know that I'm not going to do that. You know that I can't do that. As a matter of fact, we're going to go through one a week. So um, get ready for that. But um, we are going to go through the first, a little bit of an introduction today, and the first commandment today. We're going to continue our story of deliverance. Last week, we discovered that God was talking to, or he was taking his people to a, a new level. To this point, he had, they had been a people, right? They had been just a, uh, a group of traveling former slaves. You know, they were God's people, but for them, they had been in such an exile in Egypt for so long. They had been in slavery for so long they didn't know what it was like to be his people anymore. And so for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to see how God is, has, and is continually shaping the people of God into his people. Last week we discovered that God was taking his people to a, to a new level. To a new level. And as we'll find out today... He's going to take them to a people who worship. A people who worship the one and only God. A religious people. Last week's story was, was bright and vivid. 
It was a story of the God of the heavens coming down and meeting with his people. We saw the God that God came down in thunders and lightnings and the earth trembled and that a cloud swirled around the mountain and the trumpet there were great trumpet blasts that, that only exceeded in in magnitude and sound and then we saw specifically that God spoke to his people. He said I'm going to speak to them in the thunders. But we also saw that it wasn't just in the thunders that God spoke to His people. He spoke to them through the thunders, but in an audible way so that His people could understand what He was saying. And guess what? Today, on a certain level, we get to see a little bit of what God said to them. This, these commands, these ten words, were the words that God spoke in the thunder. Last week we saw a God who is both transcendent and and imminent. A God who is above all things and before all things, but a God who is in creation, a God who is present, a God who has not forsaken His creation, a God who loves His creation. As a matter of fact, since His creation fell, since Adam and Eve fell, a God who has been actively working to fulfill His plan in redeeming His creation. And today we will extend that idea by starting our study of the Decalogue or the ten words that God has for His people. We come to a place in our text where God is laying out His ten commands. These are literally, it's literally the ten words of God. It's called the Decalogue because in the Greek it comes from the word deca which means Ten and logos, which means words. So these are the ten words of God. It's okay to call them the ten words, or it's appropriate, like we always have, to call them the the ten commandments. Of course, we know that these are not the only commands of God. There were over 600 commands that God gave in the Bible, but these are ones that He specifically um, put emphasis on, and we'll see why uh, in a minute, or we'll see why a little bit. It's not the first time that God has given commands to his people, right? You, ke- you come to Exodus and you're like, well, this is not necessarily the beginning of the story, but it's, you know, Lord, you probably should have given commands. A, you know, your people have been living a hundred years or so, hundreds of years or so right now. You probably should have given commands sooner. Well, we know that on some level the people of God have been following a moral code that was based on or, or from the Ten Commands of God. We know that Cain was condemned because he murdered, he killed his brother Abel. We know that the Sodomites were condemned because of adultery. And um, there was more to that than just adultery. But, and we could go on and on about these people who were condemned and who were punished for, for breaking these laws before the Ten Commandments existed. We may come to this point as we study of Exodus, as we study the Ten Commandments, and, and we might say, we might ask ourselves, with what Jesus has done for us, how important is it that we follow these Ten Commands? Hasn't Jesus paid the penalty? Hasn't He taken my sin, you know, on the cross and through His resurrection? We don't need the law in the same way as they did, you might say. Well, I would propose to you that, that, that this mindset couldn't be further from the truth. 
The law is just as prevalent and as meaningful as it always has been. And really for this reason, before Jesus came to the earth, before he condescended and came as man, everyone under the law was still required to live by faith in order to be saved. Everyone under the law was still required to live by faith in order to be saved. You are, you are mistaken if you thought that the Ten Commands or the commands of God were given as a means of salvation for God's people. The Bible says that Abraham, what? Believed God, and he counted it unto him as righteousness. It has always been about faith that people have lived and existed. And so since Jesus didn't do anything to change that, Jesus just proved that, that it's about faith, the law really has only changed with some nuances and some things that we're not going to discuss today or, or probably anytime soon, but we might discuss at some point. You know, we don't follow dietary restrictions anymore, you know. Those were, those were, approached, those were approached and addressed in the New Testament. We don't follow uh, other Jewish uh, laws of uh, sacrifice and different things like that. Those were approached through Jesus. Those were fulfilled through Jesus. But after Jesus, nothing changed because Jesus fulfilled the law and it was still about faith. The law, friends, still has some very specific and pertinent purposes for us in our life. One theologian said that the law is like a mirror. You can look in a mirror and you can see that your face is dirty. But the mirror can only tell you that your face is dirty. The mirror cannot actually clean your face. The mirror cannot actually fix your problem. See, the Ten Commandments of God are a measure for us today. They are a mirror for us so that we can see where we are missing the mark, not so that we can fix the problems. We can see where we're missing the mark, and by faith we can trust in Jesus to make us more like him to obey the law for us. I would like to convince you today that it is important to study and know the commands of God. I'm going to give you some reasons why I think it's important to study and know. Now, if you are looking for a passionate sermon about the glory of God, you're going to find a little bit of that because you know I don't preach without passion most of the time. Uh, but for today, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction, and then we're going to focus just a little bit on this first command. Um, so uh, it's going to be a lot of information. So you might be writing a lot, but it's, I think it's going to be good. I, I hope that I hope that you enjoy this and see the value of this. So why then do we study the law? The first reason, and they should be up here, we study them because people need to be aware of what God requires. We study the law of God because people need to be aware of what God requires. If I were to propose to you today that I would give anyone under the age of 30 $20 right now if you could name me all the Ten Commandments, even after we've just read them, without looking at your Bible, if I were to propose to you today that I would give you $20 if you can name all of the Ten Commandments, not take the rest of this sermon to do so, but all of the Ten Commandments quickly, um, I'm not going to take the time to do this because it's going to be a full sermon, but I would bet that I would walk away with $20 still in my wallet. 
Because I would bet that we don't, as a practice, know God's law. We don't, as a practice, know God's commands. And we don't, as a practice, live often as if God requires much, if anything, out of his people. We study the law of God because people need to be aware of what God requires. God, hey, what God still requires. Number two, we study them because the church has used the Ten Commandments as an ethic for living throughout all of her history. We look at what the church has done and what the church has followed, and the, ten, the, the history of the church is rife with the use of the Ten Commandments as an ethic for living. Friends, I want to tell you, we are not in some bubble Just because we are modernized and we have computers and we have every answer at the tip of our cell phone, the tip of our thumbs, the tip of our fingers, it does not mean that we are a much more intelligent society. It does not mean that we have much more knowledge than they've ever had. Because I will tell you, the people who developed the phone only did that because people started with rocks and sticks. Do you understand? People started with rocks and sticks. Pe- uh, Bill, uh, whatever that dude, no, that's Bill Gates. What's the job's name? Steve Jobs, there you go. He had exponentially more than the person who invented the car. And he had exponentially more than the person who invented this and this and this and this and this. I could go on, but that's sort of a side sermon slash rant, and we're not going to be there. We are not, we don't exist in a bubble as a church. Vintage church or any other church doesn't have a a, a special knowledge or a special way of doing things that the church throughout all of history hasn't known or done. You have to understand that. Now, I think we do things differently than often many churches today, and I think that's a good thing. But we don't live in a bubble. And the church throughout history, which is something we look to as information, we look to to see what God has done in the church throughout history, has used the Ten Commandments as an ethic. So I think as the church in modern history, we should also. Number three, we study them because the Ten Commands are the foundation for the Old and New Testament. As we look at the Ten Commandments, we are able to understand the actions of God in the Old Testament. And as we look at the Ten Commandments in the Old and the New, we are able to understand our need for God in the New Testament. We study, number four, we study them because the law is from God. It gives us a picture of the heart of God. And friends, listen, the law is good. The law is good. It gives us a picture of the heart of God. The Lord said to Moses, hey, I'm going to tell these people how to operate. This didn't just appear out of thin air in a cloud, even though he comes down in a cloud. But this has been on the heart of God since before creation. Before creation, God had it on his heart that his people should live under a certain standard and in a certain way and follow this in order to be obedient to him. And he presented that to them in this way. But also, friends, the Ten Commandments are good. If everyone followed the Ten Commandments perfectly, there would be no need for prisons. If everyone followed the Ten Commandments perfectly, there would be no need for any other laws. There would be no need for copyright laws. 
laws. There would be no need for patent laws. If everyone followed the Ten Commandments, there would be no cheating in high school. You know, there would be no, um, there would be no NCAA investigation right now of, the basket, of, of basketball teams and shoe companies. The, the law of God is good. Is good. And it doesn't make people good, but it makes a good people understand what is necessary to follow God. Or let me rephrase that. It makes a people who have been made good understand what is necessary to follow God. We study the Ten Commandments because they're foundation of the Old and New Covenants. We study them because the law is from God and it gives us a picture of His heart and the law is good. We study them because they are central to a modern day ethic. They are central to not only a New Testament and an Old Testament ethic, but a modern day ethic. Now I know that we live in a society that does not live under objective truth, that does not live under moral law. As a matter of fact, the only objective truth I think the the secular society has is to see how many of God's laws they can break. The only objective, now listen, now listen, now listen, we're on that, we believe that, but hey, the only objective truth often that Christians follow is to see, see how many of God's laws we can at least skirt, we can at least step up to, or break. We study them because they are central to a modern ethic. It, they teach us how to live. It teaches how to live. And it refrains, or excuse me, it restrains society from doing evil. Now, it doesn't prevent always, but think about it. The laws keep good people doing good. And you know I use good in the loosest sense. The law keeps good people doing good. Number six, we study them because they show us our need for a Savior. In all of this, and I've used words like good, and I've used words like keeping the whole law, but in all of this we know if we just try for one day to keep the whole law, we know how incapable we are of being good. We know how incapable we are of keeping the law, and so we are appointed to the need of an intercessor. We are appointed to the need of someone who will step up and do it for us. And hey, spoiler alert, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He, he not only kept the whole law, but he made us good. Because now when, we, when God sees those who are redeemed by Jesus, he doesn't see us and our incapable nature, but he sees Jesus and his capability. The Ten Commandments are vastly important to knowing the heart of God and knowing what God requires of his people. It isn't, they aren't just important, it isn't just important to know why we observe and study the Ten Commandments of God, but we also need to develop and enrich our passion in how we view them. It isn't just important to say objectively, well, this makes sense as to why we study the Ten Commands of God. We, we need to enrich our passion. We need, to, we need to strengthen our desire to know the commands of God, to love the commands of God, and to, to follow the commands of God. Now, I've taken this um, I've taken this next little section from a few commentators, and really it's from my own mind and these commentators and from just common uh, theology and common ideas. But I, I, I want to give you 
uh, I think, five things here, and I know this a lot. I know this a lot. But Jer- I don't know if you saw Jeremy do it and people have done it in the past. If you want to wait till it's all up, it'll all appear on the screen. You can take a picture of it instead of writing them all down. That might help you. Um, and, and that's a good idea. I know this a lot. I don't typically have this many points, so, so you, can, you can bear with me because there's like 15 or something like that. Um, but this is how I, I've come up with this uh, so that we can look and how, uh, how or why we can take value or be passionate about the commands of God. And the first is this. They are congruent with the rest of Scripture. The commands of God are congruent with the rest of Scripture. Listen, it's not like Exodus 20 happened and God presented the commands of God and, and then for the rest of the Bible, He doesn't broach these commands. No, for the rest of the Bible, we see God's motivation through the Ten Commands. We see that when the people of God step away from Him, when they start to worship other gods, we see why so passionately and and viciously, it seems, that He punishes them in order to bring them back to them. We see why adultery was punished in such a way in the Bible. We see why other things were treated so, so specifically and, and, and we would even say harshly when we look at the Ten Commandments. But not only that, the New Testament authors used the Ten Commandments as a part of the building block, a part of the foundation for how they wrote the New Testament. You know, obviously under the direction of the Holy Spirit, obviously under the guide of God. But they are congruent. The, the commandments are congruent with the rest of Scripture. We can look at these ten commands and we can read and study every other word that we have of God and know that not one other word will be incongruent with these ten commands. They are congruent with the rest of Scripture. Another reason we can have a passion about these commands is they touch on both the physical obedience and obedience of the heart. We have physical obedience. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Or, well, no, excuse me, that's a heart. Don't uh, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. There's an action behind all of those. But there's also these things of the heart. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't bear false witness. And you can even break these commands down and say, well, don't murder. That's a physical. But Jesus says... If you hate someone in your heart, you've gone to the extent of committing murder to them. So the spiritual side of that would be, I need to be, I I need to have my heart in check to the glory of the Lord and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that I don't become a murderer in my heart. The Bible says if you lust after a woman that you've committed adultery in your heart. These commandments, these commandments cover not only a range of the physical things that we might do, but also the spiritual things. So, uh, so they cover a full spectrum of what we might need for knowing God and obeying God. Number three, they point to both a positive and negative aspect of obeying God. They point to both a positive and negative aspect of obeying God. Now you might say, well, I only see a negative. But, but if you take them to their logical conclusion, you can find the positive. Let me do one for you, and I'll let you have fun doing the rest later. Do not covet. Do not covet. The positive would be a general attitude and a contentment and a happiness for your neighbor and a desire for his success. The negative would be don't want what he has. 
to, to where it causes you to despise him or to scheme or to do things to take away from him. The positive would be, be happy for people. Be happy for people. Don't be so longing for what other people have that you can't be joyful when people have good things. Be happy for people. There are positive and negative commands to almost every command. The negative command, don't kill. The positive command, you treat life as sacred. Not just the lives, we've talked about this before, but I'll just jab it in there real quickly. Not just the lives of infants, but all life as sacred. Don't kill. Treat life as sacred. I'll let you, I said I was going to do one. There's two. I'll let you do the rest. They point to both a positive and negative aspect of obeying God. Number four, each command covers a category of sins that really forms a complete standard of living. Each command covers a category of sins. The ten commands aren't just ten objective-specific commands, but they are ten objective-specific commands with a range of other things that these ten commands cover. I'm not very good at explaining this, so I'm going to let Philip Ryken do this for you. He says, for example, the seventh commandment includes not simply the act of adultery, hear me, but every form of sexual misconduct. So adultery, no. And then other forms of sexual misconduct. It covers premarital sex. It covers the use of pornography or self-stimulation. All of these sins are forbidden. Also forbidden are the sins that lead up to adultery. God calls husbands and wives to nurture their fellowship with one another. It is unlawful for a couple to grow apart from one another physically, spiritually, emotionally, or sexually. It is also wrong for a husband or a wife to have intimate relationships with other men or women, even if those relationships are not sexual, at least not yet. Adultery begins long before before two people get in bed together. These are only a few examples of many sins included under the category of the seventh commandment. That wasn't me. That was Philip Ryken, by the way, if you didn't hear me. These commands are not just objective singular commands, but they're categories of commands. They're categories of commands. Five, they point us to a holy standard but also help us to point others to a holy standard of personal growth and discipleship. They point us to a holy standard, but also help us to point others to a holy standard. And I just added of personal growth and discipleship. These commands, we should have a great passion about them because they give us a standard for living. Jesus says, we, we know the work of Jesus um, is complete, it's done, it's for us. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then he says, if you love me, keep my commands. The commands give us an objective standard to grow in Christ after Christ has saved us. But also... To usher other people in, to usher other people in into a knowledge of what it means to be more like Christ. Friends, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He even said that not one yote or tittle, not one punctuation point is what he said, will pass away until he returns. The commands of God, after all, were given 
to his people with Jesus. Listen, the commands of God in Exodus were given to his people with Jesus on the heart of God and as Jesus and with Jesus as the law giver. Do you understand that? Don't forget that. When you think about the work that Jesus has done, don't separate it from the fact that Jesus was the one that gave the laws. Jesus, as a part of the Trinity, gave the laws. And God, as a part of the Trinity, and being omniscient, gave the laws with what Jesus would do in mind. Don't forget that. Don't separate. You, you can separate if you just say, well, Jesus saved me. Well, hey, Jesus was there. Jesus was there in Exodus. Jesus was on that mountain. And the cross was in the mind of God as he was giving the Ten Commandments of God. People look at the law today and they worry about it because there are dietary restrictions and other things that we're not required to keep and, you know, sacrificial things. And they look at it and they say, well, isn't it just legalistic to focus so much on keeping the law? It's, legalism is one of the really cool cop-outs of especially a church that is not typically formal or legalistic. To which I would say legalism is not the desire to keep the law and in the process becoming more holy. Legalism is the desire to keep the law in order to be more holy. There's the difference. And that's a vast difference that you can use as a measure in your life. Legalism is not the desire to keep the law and in the process be more holy. Legalism is the desire to keep the law in order that you may be holy. The law cannot make you holy. Christ can make you holy. Keeping the law with Christ as the forefront will make you holy just because that's how it works. I would say, friends, if you want to know God's heart, then we should study the law and not abandon it. We should keep the law and not mock it. And we should do it trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And now all of you can say, longest introduction ever. I promise you, I got a little bit more, and I promise you my sermon is not going to be anywhere close to as long as the introduction. Don't check out. When I was a kid... I had a pastor who did the longest introductions ever. Mine might be a little bit better. I'm not going to sit here and compare, but the longest introductions ever. And when he said, and now point one, I was like, put my head in my, put my, head in my lap and I was done. So hopefully you didn't do that today. And maybe my, by drawing attention to it, you especially won't do that. So with that in mind, with what we've said about the law in mind, I want us to look at this first command really quickly. Read with me Exodus chapter 20. Read along with me Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first word of the Lord. The first command of God's people. The first word is to have no other gods before him. Now, I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on this point because, in a sense, monotheism or the belief that there is only one God is something that we all follow pretty strictly. But I do think that although we have grasped it theologically, sometimes we struggle to ascertain that same view practically. 
So I think we need to focus on this monotheistic view from a practical standpoint today. I want to answer two questions, and these are the two small points that we'll have today. I want to answer two questions today about the first command that I think will be helpful for us in our lives. The first question is this. Why would God give this command to his people? Why would God give this command to his people? And the second, the second question is, how do we keep it today? Why would God give this command to his people, and how do we keep it today? This first and great command is foundational to all other commands in the Bible. It is our singular, it is our singular worship of the one true God that sets the standard for holy living and general obedience to the Lord. It seems that God's people would have recognized this, but he thinks it's important for all of his people then and all of his people now and all of his people in his future to under in the future to understand this command. So so God gives this command. Why did God give them this command and why is this command necessary for all of us? First, I think because they came from a strictly polytheistic society. They came from a polytheistic society. Egyptians had many gods. Other nations had many gods. As a matter of fact, if your nation didn't have many gods, you would be the weird one. It was, it was in God's nature from the beginning to be monotheistic. It was what he taught Abraham. It's what he taught Noah. It's what he taught Moses. And it's what he's confirming in these commands. But it's not what everyone else around them was doing. Everyone else around them was polytheistic. As a matter of fact, it would have been so foreign for any nation to say, this is the God, all of your gods are false. All of your gods are fake. It seems um, there's a common thread between that society and our society. They came from a polytheistic nation. That's the first reason why God would give them this command. And he is going to show them, like he showed Abraham, like he showed Isaac, that there is only one God. They are going to base everything that comes after this on this mono, mono, monotheistic ideology. The second reason I think God gave them this command is because God was pointing out that he wasn't one of many, but that he was the only one. He was pointing out that he wasn't one of many, but that he was only one. Riken said again of this, What God commanded was based on who he was and what he had done. God had saved his people for his glory, and now he was saving them as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. <coughs> it is my right to rule, excuse me, he was saying to them as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, It is my right to rule over you. But more than this, I am your very own God, we are bound together by covenant promise, and I have redeemed you. I have released you from your bondage to Pharaoh. With ten mighty plagues, I have defeated all the deities of Egypt, showing that I am the one and only true God, and now I claim my right to all your worship and all your praise because of who I am and on the basis of what I have done. I will not share my glory with another God. God was pointing out that he was one, the one and only, and not one of many. When God is saying no other gods before me, he is not admitting that there are multiple gods, and he is the best. What he is saying is, is he is saying, when, you, when we create these false gods in our lives, they have a demonic possession of us. 
When idols are created, and the Bible says that man resisted the Creator and worshipped the creation. It was man who created these false gods. And when idols are created, they have a possession on us. And what God is doing by saying, I am the only God, no other gods before me, is He is recognizing the possession of these other gods. It was something that Joshua dealt with later. It is something that idolatry and this possession has been something that people have dealt with throughout, throughout, throughout all of history. But Joshua says, in Joshua 24, he says, he says, choose this day who you will serve, whether it's the God your father served across the river uh, or, or the Lord. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. It's a constant struggle of God's people as they, interming, as they intermingle with other nations, as they become and conquer other nations who have hundreds of deities, if not more. Even though they are not real, they, have a, they still have a mental hold and a mental possession on people. And the Lord is telling them that He is the only God, as can be seen by the indefensible destruction that He left behind on the outskirts of Egypt. If you have any questions about whether any of those gods are real, just ask Pharaoh's army. Whoops. Ask Ra. Ask Ra. Ask Isis. Ask the other gods that were to cover the water and were cover the ground and were cover the harvest and were cover the moon and the sun. Ask them if there are any other gods. You can't. Because God says, if you remember, I took care of them. God is pointing out that he is not one of many, but he is the one and only. He is giving them the motivation to keep the rest of the law. Now, I know some people cringe when they see me parenting. And they cringe when they hear me talk about it because it's not the way you would parent. And I would just say, in many instances, you're probably wrong. And I'm okay, I'm okay with you cringing. And I'm not saying this to be arrogant, because I'm, but I know that I'm a good parent. I know that I'm a good parent because I'm following the objective standards that I've seen as laid out in Scripture. Now, you need to hear me, okay? I'm not about to say that I'm a God. And you're going to take this in, in a context and you're going to, you're going to tweet it, or you're going to put it on Facebook, and then they're going to, the, you know, whoever controls us, not really anybody, is going, to, is going to come and try to shut us down. But practically, parents are gods to their children. You have to understand that this is allegory here, okay? Remember, like gods to their children. You feed them, you provide them with shelter, you give them love, you teach them life, and many other things. They also answer to you. As a proverbial God to your children, you set standards or adopt standards that they follow. You do this as a means of warning them. You show them your power as a means of warning them. Sometimes you even do that with a cloud of smoke and thunder and lightning. For my children, they have had some ten plague type experiences. 
So as I build on my authority in their life, they begin to trust that I am consistent and that my authority, listen, this is very important, my authority is enough motivation to do right. So I say to my son recently that he and I are the men of the house and that we protect our ladies. We don't disrespect mommy because we love her and we treat women kindly. This, is, this happened. But I also say that she is my wife. And I love her more than anything. And that it angers me when people treat her badly. And then I say something like this. I'm going to spank you if you treat your mother like that again. In a sense, I am exercising my authority over him as a means of motivation to do right. And just as a parent does, if you exercise your authority and you're consistent in your authority, then sooner or later they will see that you are the God of that house. God says, I am the only God as can be seen by the authority that I exercised over Egypt, as can be seen by my sovereignty since creation, as can be seen by my provision throughout this wilderness wandering, and as will be seen from here to eternity. And this is your motivation, that I'm the only one that can do this. You know, if I go to my parents' house, and Bennett does something wrong, and I'm going to punish him, and my dad says, no, no, and he looks, this is what my dad says, believe it or not, my dad used to beat the fire out of me, but anyway, so he looks at Bennett, and he says, Bryce, he was, he was just doing this, and Bennett looks at Pocky, Pocky, and, and, I, and I say, and my dad looks down, and Bennett looks at me, and I handle business, because my dad is not a God in my son's life. And he can look to my dad for help, but my dad will not provide the answers. My dad will not provide the motivation. Because I am am that last authority. I am that last authority. And friends, God is saying, I am that God. I am the one true God. And this is enough motivation. You've seen what I've done. You've seen what I've done. This is enough motivation to do right. Friends, this is important because what we need to understand is that we are just a Mount Calvary away. We are just an empty tomb away from wrath and judgment and what we deserve. But thanks be to God that through His power, through His objective measure that He is the only one God, we have life And we have hope. We have peace. How do we keep the law then today? How do we keep this law? We hold to a Trinitarian but monotheistic view of God. We hold to a Trinitarian but monotheistic view of God. We believe there is only one God. We believe that there are not multiple roads to heaven, but there is one road to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. We believe in a monotheistic theology, a monotheistic view of God. We flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Now that's easier said than done because most of us will look at our lives and say, idolatry? What idolatry? You likely don't have any graven images in your house or any pantheon of gods, but there is a test for what We have as idolatrous in our life, and I know we're going to go long, but you have to listen. There is a test. 
And here's the test. What do I love? What do I trust? That is the test of what in your life is idolatrous. What do I love and what do I trust? Friends, what do you desire? What do you think about? What do you spend most of your time on? What do you spend your money on? What do you get excited about? Idolatry can and often does involve good things. It often involves financial security. It often involves family security and fitness and exercise and many other leisure activities. It often involves food. It often involves friends and other relationships. We must look at ourselves, we must ask ourselves, what do we love? And then try to determine, listen, this is an important distinction, then try to determine, not do we love this thing more than God, because all of us would probably say, oh no, I don't love that more than God. Not do we love this more than Jesus, but does my love for this prevent me or hinder me from keeping the first and second commands? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and all our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. We must ask ourselves, what do we love? How do we love it? Does it hinder us from loving Jesus and from loving others? What do you love? Anything that you can't stop thinking about? Anything that you give all of your heart? Anything that you put all of your faith in or you put your faith in? Anything that you put before God? Anything that you give all of your love, heart, and emotions, thoughts, it is an idol. It is an idol. What do you love? Most of us think we're doing pretty well on the Ten Command front, or you might have thought that before today, and then we all just got tripped up on number one. Can't wait for the rest of the nine, huh? We all just got tripped up on number one. As a matter of fact, I would say that daily, if not daily, weekly, we get tripped up on number one. The second question to measure idolatry is what do we trust? Where does your heart go in times of trouble? Luther said, whatever the heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan, he said, to trust in anything more than God is to make that a God. The Puritan Matthew Henry said, Pride makes a God of self. Covetous makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. What is it that you put most of your trust in when it comes to difficult areas of your life like finances and marriage and children and family and friends and safety and freedom and, and whatever and whatever and whatever? Do you trust addictions when you're in trouble? Do you, you trust money? Do you trust alcohol or drugs or sex? Will that bring you the security that you need? Will that make you feel better? Will that allow you to sleep at night? Anything we trust more than God is a cheap substitute and is an idol. If you think about it, this is what we see in all polytheistic societies. They had a God for each or a few of the characteristics of the one true God. We can't explain the thunder and the lightning. Let's make a God for that. The waters rage. Let's make a God for that. There's different 
uh, celestial things that are happening. The moon's doing different things. There's shooting stars. There's comets. There's all of this. There's different appearances of planets. We can't make up. Let's make up a God for that. All of this was a simple way of denying that there is only one God and he holds all of that power. And most importantly, we are accountable to him. The reason polytheism is so important is because it allows you to dilute the power of God and then you don't have to be accountable to anything on such magnificent and dynamic and awe-inspiring power as the one true God. How do we... How do we keep the first and great commandment today beside the two things I said? Trust Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus. Stop pursuing anything above and beyond what is preventing you from pursuing Jesus Christ most, first and foremost in your life. Repent. Change your mindset about the way you were going. Turn, 180, 100, that was the 360, I think, 180 degrees. Turn 180 degrees. Repent, trust Jesus, and follow him. Pray with me today. Lord, you are good and you are holy. Lord, your goodness is insurmountable. It's unmatchable. It is unlike anything we've ever known. Your holiness is to be desired and to be pursued and to be cherished. Lord, help us as a people to put no other gods before you. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you. And help us to live for you as the single, all-powerful God of the universe, the one we are accountable to. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.